Well, we are now pressing ourselves into uh, chapter 15 and 16 of John, not verse by verse, but by theme, because we're building a model uh, that Christ has shared here in these three chapters, 14, 15, 16, of a structure of faith and of the Christian life, that we began by the Father sending the Son, the Son providing for the salvation of all men, which was about to come, that if I don't leave, uh, it's not to your benefit. it's, It's more beneficial for you that I accomplish the work I came to than just staying around. And so Jesus Christ is on the cusp of completing that assignment and, uh, and he's preparing his disciples for his departure. His call has been a continually that they believe in him, believe in me, believe in the signs at least, believe in what I have taught, the word that you have heard, and that's going to come out again uh, as we go through this regularly, and believe that I am the Father, that the Father and I are one. These are the levels of belief that John has been presenting consistently throughout his book. And that's why he could say all these people who believed in him didn't really believe in him and left off following after him um, because they wanted to believe the sign, but they didn't want to believe this hard teaching that Jesus and the Father were one and that he had come to die on a cross. These are all things that they didn't connect with. They were looking for a kingdom. They were looking for a Messiah, a political leader. Uh, They were not looking for someone to deliver them from their sins, to end the sacrifices of the temple. Uh, They weren't looking for that. They weren't looking for an authority that would trump the authority of priests and of sacrifices and of the temple. And so when Jesus Christ comes and says, there's something greater than the temple here, uh, and that you want to worship here at the temple and exalt it, but you don't exalt me who is greater than the temple. Uh, and so we find uh, that this has been the problem. They want to believe the signs. Certainly he's a man of God. Certainly his power uh, has been evidenced. But then they don't want to believe his word. They don't want to believe in him. And so to the disciples, he's even struggling to bring them to this point. Once we have belief established, uh, not established, but at least initiated. (laughs) Once we have belief added to this uh, structure of God, that is the Father sends the Son, the Son provides for our salvation, uh, that now we are called upon to believe that this is our response to the Father's initiation and the Son's provision, we are now called upon to respond. Do we by faith believe? And yes, we want to move from belief to belief to belief, uh, and that, that process is an important one, uh, that we don't just pray some one prayer and say, I got it covered, I believe, and uh, James tries to bring that out very strongly. You say you believe, but you, you say you have faith, but you have no works. Uh, can that kind of faith save you? And there's a distinguishment between these faiths that we can believe on a very simplistic level, but there's not security there, because we could very, very easily later on just say, well, I don't like what the Bible's teaching, and I want to—I don't want to follow after it. Well, now you've entered into a very precarious place. I can't give you any assurance of salvation, and if I'm at your funeral, I'm not going to preach that because your belief needs to mature, and your discipleship has to be implemented in your life before we can really have security. And that's why. Throughout John, and particularly in 1 John, we also see it. I write these things at the end of 1 John so that you may know that you have eternal life. Well, what are these things that John writes? 
Well, you need to do this, this, this. We're going to get to those later on. But uh, we can read through 1 John and say, well, you have to confess your sin. You have to acknowledge your sin. You have to stop sinning. You have to love your brother. You have to keep his commandments. You have to love God. You have, uh, all these things are the evidences of maturing faith. And so we, our initial faith is in response usually to the work of Jesus Christ and dealing with our sin. But as we mature and develop this faith, um, it, it encompasses all of it. And as we respond to God's provision through Jesus Christ our Lord, we then see God responding to us. So as we receive his truth by faith, uh, accepting his son, receive his son by faith, that God says, I will give you my spirit. That if I go away, I will not leave you orphans. You're not on your own. Once you respond to me by faith, receiving uh, my gift of salvation, then uh, I will provide you the Holy Spirit. We started looking at that provision of God, this, this structure that he gives, but it is requisite that we must believe in order to receive the Holy Spirit. And you might say, well, God's holding out on me. No, he has already sent the Son. The Son has already died on the cross, and now he waits for you to respond. Once we respond to that activity, and technically we are already responding to the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see a little bit today and, and probably in the next week, he then uh, is waiting for us to believe. Will you believe that? And even Jesus keeps saying, will you at least believe this? You know, and then we'll build on that, but let's at least, you have to at least believe something, because if you don't believe any of it, you're lost. There's no further opportunity, there's no further avenue by which you can be saved. And that's why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so if you don't believe me, then you're in trouble. And so there is no need for God to give you more. You know, just show us more. Show, that, that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, just show us more, show us more, show us more. He's like, well, you've already seen enough. And he finally says, you're not going to see any more, except for one. And that is you're going to see this temple rebuilt in three days, referring to his own body. That's going to be the last sign that you're going to be given um, from me. Uh, it's not going to be the last sign they're going to see, because uh, to Pentecost, there's obviously some evidence there as well. But from Jesus Christ personally, that's the last sign he's going to give them. Because they just weren't ever, there was never enough. And so once we enter into that, that relationship of responding to God by faith believing, now God is going to gift us with Holy Spirit. And we saw that last week in John 14. We want to pick up there. And we're going to delve into chapter 15, which is going to drive us immediately into chapter 16's passage as well. But we want to take some time to develop this. Let's begin in verse 25 of chapter 14. It says, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, that paraclete, the, the, the Comforter, uh, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. And again, the very next verse is one of our key components that we're trying to get to. We want peace, perfect peace. Uh, and so right there it says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, now as the world gives I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, which is how the chapter began, back in his, his whole uh, interaction, conversation with them, began back there in 14.1, let not your heart be troubled. Uh, <clears throat> and again, uh, why should our heart be troubled? Because you heard me say to you, I'm going away, coming back to you, uh, and, I loved, and if you love me, you would rejoice. 
And there's another one of our components that we're after is joy and rejoicing. I'm, because I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it comes that when it comes to pass, you may believe. He still sees in their future a necessity for further belief. Because for the next three days, they're not going to believe much. They're going to be in despair. They're going to be despondent. They're going to be hiding. Uh, these, this is not the activity of people who believe Jesus' words. That his prophecy, that he said that you kill me in three days after you're buried, I'll rise again. Um, that's not what it looks like to believe, to be hiding and, and, and cowering around. And in fact, even on that morning, when the women come running in and saying, we've seen the Lord, they didn't really believe. They didn't believe the testimony of someone else. And so they run, Peter and John run to the tomb. They find it empty. They have to have this encounter. And of course, even one of them was missing on the first encounter with the disciples with Jesus. That was Thomas. And he says, well, I'll believe it when I see it with my own hands and put my fingers in there and, and know that these wounds were, that it really was Jesus. And so belief is a real problem. But once that hurdle is traversed, once we are over that ridge of believing, Jesus Christ is going to respond by giving us Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he is going to lead us into truth. That This is his primary responsibility. Um, while we uh, are going to look at how he works in the world, uh, when we talk about him taking up residence in us, and this is very important because it's so muddy these days, what does it mean when I have Holy Spirit? Well, one of the first evidences of it is his revelation or his uh, illumination, I should say, rather than revelation, because there are too many people saying that things are being revealed to them that are outside of the scriptures. His illumination to us is the knowledge of the scripture, particularly of what? of the gospel message which we have believed, of the person of Jesus Christ uh, who has provided that means of our salvation and of the requirements of discipleship. Um, these are the first things. It's not dotting every theological I and crossing every theological T. We're not there yet. Um, but initially, he's going to come in and get us an understanding of this. And, and Paul expected this as well. Paul, in writing to others, other churches, was like, you should know these things. Why is it necessary for me? I taught it to you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. Um, you should be well beyond these initial things. This is breast milk. And it's time that you should be moving on to solid food. But you're not. Why are you not maturing? Because you are not investing yourself in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. And remember, Holy Spirit is not a thing, a person. He's a person. Is it possible to live in the same house with a person and not really know them? Yes. All you have to do is avoid having any, any intimate interaction with them. That's all you have to do. Just don't speak to each other. Just don't spend time in the same room. Just bang around and, and have silent meals and, or don't even eat together. You know, it's very possible to be in close proximity to someone and not be intimate with someone. Um, have you ever ridden a train, bus, plane, and you're sitting right next to someone that you don't know their name? 
and you get off and you still don't know their name or anything about them. Well, you've been in proximity sometimes for hours. Boy, when, we, when you have to travel overseas and you get that long flight from the, U, from the U.S. all the way over to India or even just Germany and some of those, and you're on that plane overnight usually it seems like, and you're there 12, 14 hours right next to this person, and the only thing you really ever said to them was, excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom. Or the only thing they ever said to you was that. Um, you were in proximity, but you did not know each other. And so, Holy Spirit is a person that God sends to those who believe in him, but he, like any other person, while he resides in us, you might say, well, that's about as intimate as you can get, but you can still disregard him. Do not associate proximity with intimacy. Just because he is in you does not mean you are attentive to him. does not mean that you're having a personal relationship there. And what many people are struggling with in their relationship and in the evidences of the Holy Spirit in their life is that they want him to do it and you to be passive, and that's not what a relationship is. If one person's doing all the talking and the other person's just sitting there, well, that, that's not how you develop a relationship. You expect interaction. Uh, you expect a response. At some point, you just stop talking because they're not really listening, it seems, because they're not reactive at all. And somehow we have this idea of the Holy Spirit that he should be doing all of this and we should be doing nothing. But we have this, we should have, what we should have is an intimate relationship. That as I invest in my relationship with the Holy Spirit, and, and which God initiated by putting him in me, that I believe, I trust in him, and now the Holy Spirit takes up residence here. Now we have an opportunity for a relationship because now we have proximity. All right? That makes it a lot easier. I don't have to get on my phone and Skype him. Um, he's right there, um, but I, he has proximity. I still have to invest myself, um, but he's right there. God made that happen. So God initiated this relationship between you and the Holy Spirit. Once you understand, just like he initiated the relationship by sending the Son and the Son coming and, and providing for you. He did all that whether you believe or not. And he invites you to believe. Now he's, you've believed and you've trusted in him. He sends his Holy Spirit in you and, the, and we're in the same scenario. He initiated it by sending the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the helper, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside you. So he's right there alongside of you. Now you have another opportunity. And the requirement of you is to respond. How do you respond? How do you engage the Holy Spirit? Well, we know it's from, from his description. He is the spirit of truth. It is when we begin to truly engage truth. So he is sent from the Father in the name of the Son, and he has come to be our helper. Uh, and I don't know about you, but whenever I think of someone helping me, it doesn't mean that I do nothing and they do everything. Right? So if I come to be your helper, do you expect me to do everything, or do you expect me to do some of it? Okay, so when I'm in construction, I ask someone, can you come help me do this? Or I'm doing, can you, I expect to do the lion's share of the work and that they will uh, enable that and to magnify and multiply the effort I put forth. And I would contend this is much closer to what it is to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit. 
And that is that if we are investing ourselves in a relationship, he is the empowerment and the enabling. That he is the one that will direct it. Uh, and so I, I can use lots of illustrations here, and many people have. You know, that you have a, a vehicle traveling that, uh, a vehicle that's not moving is hard to steer. Did you ever notice that? It's really hard to steer a vehicle not moving. It doesn't go anywhere. Even turning the wheel is hard. I know we have automatic steering, but back in the day, and I, I, it, even turning the wheel is hard because you're just grinding the wheel on the ground. But once you start moving forward, now steering takes on a whole different feel. It becomes simpler, easier, and it's more effective. And so the Holy Spirit guides us He's that steering wheel, um, but he requires something of us, and, and that is that we're moving. That his guidance has effect. What are we moving to? We are moving in the truth. We are, we are living that. We are, as you saw in science school, we are making the walk. We are walking in his truth. And so we have this requirement of us to be responsive. Um, he has the power, but, but he waits for us to engage it. And so we have uh, this interaction. And we should know in our minds, and we should really believe in our hearts, that God is good. After all, if he initiated this whole deal by sending his son to die on the cross, if he provided everything you needed, so all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ, if he, if he has gone to all this extent to bring you to, into a relationship with him, uh, and then he's going to send his Holy Spirit to dwell in you, hopefully we have become convinced that God, our God is good. And he desires good for us. And that he is not going to invite us into something that is going to be unsavory. And he is not holding back. That somehow um, God won't let the Holy Spirit cut loose in our lives anymore um, because he's become stingy over time. That is not who our God is. He desires us to have a very active relationship with Holy Spirit and thus with him and he describes it extensively in God's word but like every element of our salvation we can resist it and this is a component we don't often talk about when it comes to Holy Spirit's ministry but yet the Bible keeps referencing it over and over again so Holy Spirit comes and we're going to talk about that here very right now let's do it right now um, the reference between the scriptures and the Holy Spirit Jesus Christ says, when he comes, he will teach you everything. And he will remind you of the things I taught you. Now, Jesus Christ, I wasn't there to hear Jesus Christ teaching. And so I am a great benefactor of this promise, Holy Spirit, because I don't have to trust myself to the memory of a handful of fishermen, tax collectors, and such. Isn't that a relief? 
that I don't have to remember what he taught three years ago, and I don't have to trust the recollection of a man, because the Bible says Holy Spirit's going to come, he's going to remind you of everything I taught you, and then you're going to have his assistance in, in writing it down, and thus the Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and so he's inspired it, that's God-breathed, which is God-spirited. It's the Spirit of God working through men to bring to their mind that which needs to be written down for your edification. So we are the benefactors extensively of this work of Holy Spirit on our behalf. So not only has he, is he in us presently, we are the extraordinary benefactors of a historical work in the apostles that would have us have before us the scriptures. This is the work of Holy Spirit on your, benefit, on your benefit, to your benefit, on your behalf. So not only do you have his power and guidance and all of that resident in proximity to you, you have the historical work, his historical work of reminding the apostles of everything Jesus taught and having it written down that we might be taught, and thus this is the sword of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. And so we rely upon him to use it in our lives. So when we talk about having a relationship with Holy Spirit, we cannot divorce that from a relationship with the scriptures. They are together. They're two sides of the same coin. The scriptures are the production of the Holy Spirit, of this job in, in, Romans, or in John 14, that um, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. And we have what the Spirit brought forward in the apostles' minds and wrote down for us and have communicated to us. And that's why... Our relationship with the Holy Spirit is so in tune with our relationship with God's Word. It is not that this is some mysterious uh, secret document that, that gives you special words to say or spell book somehow to, to invoke the Holy Spirit. Okay, We are not just forming a different branch of witchdom here. Rather, this is the product of his historical work, and so I'm taking his past work among the apostles, bringing that into my life, along with his present work of illumination, and we are combining them into a wonderful, <laughs> maturing relationship. But when I hear most people talk about the Holy Spirit leading them, here's what I usually hear from them. Well, I felt this. I felt this. I felt this. I thought this. I felt that. And I'm startled. Well, I'm not anymore because I've been a pastor a long time. So now I'm not startled. Oh, I, I'm pretty much waiting to hear it. Well, I felt at peace about this. And I was like, really? Because what you just described to me is called adultery. What did the Holy Spirit do in your life to make you at peace with adultery? Yeah. I, I, people have said that to me. I'm sleeping with a married man. I'm at peace with that because God brought him into my life. At what point do, have we so disassociated uh, even God, God from holy, 
from Spirit from Holy. He's the Holy Spirit. We can't even get that part right, let alone connecting him to God's Word. You want to develop this relationship with the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to get into his Word, his sword, his mechanism by which he communicates with us and not rely on your feelings, which are easily manipulated. My daughter was recounting some of her time at the UNM football uh, as a dietary aid there uh, uh, for her education. And he's like, oh, they're always yelling and getting these guys all pumped up and they're all, and then they go charging out there. And, and I was like, yeah, because they're manipulating emotions to tap adrenaline. Anyone can do it. For any reason, that's how mobs are formed. It's an easy thing, and too many preachers are too good at it. And they get your adrenaline all tapped up, and they have the music, they have the scene, they have the setting, they have everything all set up, and they, and they have the delivery, and we aren't so much interested in the truth, and, and that's the other thing that really frustrates me. Oh, this guy's a great preacher, Pastor. You should listen to him. And I listen to him, and I'm like, how much error did you not get out of that sermon? What you mean is he is a great orator. He is not a great preacher because what he's communicating is error. Where is the Holy Spirit's discernment in your life that you can go to the scripture and say, this isn't truth. This is error. But the Holy Spirit, as he leads us, leads us into truth always. Well, what is truth? Well, truth is the conformity to Jesus Christ. And this is the word that John speaks of. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The things that were brought to their memory. And so we have a requirement to respond by faith in the Holy Spirit, which brings us to the alternative. <laughs> there are a lot of scriptures, I'll list three here, that tell us the Holy Spirit will not force himself into your life. We have a scripture that says, do not resist the Holy Spirit. That's a strange command if the Spirit of God is irresistible, which is the eye of every Calvinistic tulip, the irresistible grace, that you cannot say no to God once he says, you're the person I'm going to make you into. Um, that, and, and modern uh, Calvinists, the decretal Calvinists, that everything is the decree of God, and therefore we can't resist any of it. Well, then where in the world, why in the world is there a verse in the scripture that says, do not resist the Holy Spirit? And he's not talking to unbelievers, he's talking to the church, do not resist the Holy Spirit, which means you can resist the Holy Spirit, and it might even be normal for you to resist the Holy Spirit, and it is spiritual for you not to. And so, yes, the Holy Spirit will not force himself into your life. You have invited him by faith in Jesus Christ. He is a gift of God, but that does not mean then that he has free reign in your life. Presence doesn't equal reign. And so, again, proximity doesn't mean intimacy. Proximity doesn't mean that he is reigning there in your life. And so he says, do not resist. We're also told, walk in the Spirit. The alternative, do not be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. We have all these instructions that, that call us to something. That we are to be responsive to his activity by walking with him. That is, choosing to live our life in accordance with him. 
that um, he is not going to, <laughs> like I see some of you taking your kids around, he's not going to grab you by the hand and drag you through the stores kicking and screaming. He invites you to walk with him. Which means that you engage your will and say, I want to go along with Holy Spirit on this. And what is Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. So I'm going to walk in truth. In John's words, I want my children to walk in the light. Holiness. So he's the truth. We're also told not to quench the Holy Spirit in Thessalonians. Do not quench the Spirit of God which is in you. Don't quench him. Well, how do you quench that? That fire and, uh, is a picture there. There's several ways of quenching fire, right? You can remove fuel. Well, pretty much that's all of it. Or you can drown it. All right, just simply remove fuel. All you do is either remove whatever's burning, whatever the fuel is, whether it's a wood fire, gas fire, a oil fire. You just remove the, the fuel. Or you can move the oxygen, which is one of the other fuels of fire, and suffocate it. Um, and, and or drown it. So you have several ways, but it says don't quench that spirit within you. Well, why have the command if there is not the potentiality and maybe even the probability that what is normal for us is to quench him, what is spiritual in us is to fuel him. Are we providing the fuel for the spirit's fire? And what is that? That, that we need to Turn the gauge up on. And I'm convinced it is not about your feelings and it's not about emotional experiences. It's about engaging his historical work of reminding the disciples everything Jesus taught. Because remember, the Holy Spirit's relationship isn't just with you, it's with the Son and the Father. He was sent by the Father in the Son's name to remind you, to remind the disciples and then have it written down what the Son taught, and we know from John, what did the Son teach? Everything the Father told him to. So there's a direct correlation between Holy Spirit's work of your scriptures, direct line right to the very heart and mind of God. And why aren't we tapping that? So that's the historical work, and we have that in in paper here and his present work is to is to illuminate that to turn the light on so that we're not in the dark and this is the evidence I want to see in people's lives that I want to hear in preaching I want to hear it biblically based and I don't want to hear it skirted around and 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 manipulated I want to hear the pure milk of the word that I may grow thereby and this is the spirit of truth once we begin that maturing process, now we have a wondrous additional work of Spirit of God. And uh, it's going to be developed in several ways. John doesn't develop every work of the Spirit here. Jesus, in his conversation with them, is, is working on the initial aspects. Uh, we're going to see it developed when we talk about the spiritual gifts and, and uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit and all of that. It's going to be in other scriptures that the Holy Spirit will inspire. So remember, this isn't everything. John tells us that at the end of the book. I didn't write down everything. You can't do that. Um, but this is what the Spirit is, gave me, reminded me to write down. And so uh, Paul tells us about the spiritual gifts for the ministering to the body of Christ. And we're not going to get into that, uh, but it's there. I want to communicate, because that's not Jesus' 
purpose. His really purpose is to push the initiation of the work of the Holy Spirit. And that brings us to chapter 15. One of the primary things that Christ was uh, needing to communicate to his 12 disciples was the need for the gospel to go forth from them to the world. And uh, he talks about his relationship between them and the world in chapter 15, verse 18, and following. Uh, they're going to hate you, but and you can't love them. And uh, there's that contrast. We're going to work on that as we go through the, the responses we have to the Holy Spirit uh, and the next layer of the spiritual cake till we get to the structure, till we get to um, peace, joy, and love. And so they're going to hate you. They hated me. They're going to hate you. That should be there. We get down to verse 26. It says, but when the helper comes, there's that word paraclete comforter again, um, whom I shall send to you from the Father, there's the origin again, and the, and the mechanism, so the, the Father and the Son are sending the Spirit. The Spirit of truth, there again, is a reiteration. Remember, I told you, Jesus is very repetitive in this conversation because he wants to get it into their heads. So he is the spirit of truth. He is sent from the Father in the Son's name. He is the paraclete, the helper, the one who comes alongside of you, uh, the comforter. And so he is the one. So when he comes, that guy who proceeds from the Father, let me reiterate that. We have a direct connection with God the Father through Holy Spirit. He is a secondary mediator is what I called him last week. Remember, we have a mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. We also have a mediator between us and the truth as the Holy Spirit. Look at what he, his other work is. So we've seen him in his previous works. Now we have another one. He will testify of me. He will testify of me. One of the evidences of Holy Spirit in your life is that you have a testimony of Jesus Christ by his efforts, by his work. If you have a, an intimate relationship with Holy Spirit, it will be evident and it will testify that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And so when I come to people and say, well, and I've used this, in fact, one of the very first people that ever came to the Lord in the midst of our church planting, um, that's how she responded. And it wasn't me that said it. It was her Sunday school teacher who said, well, you know, you have the Holy Spirit because you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit. She just looked at it and was like, uh. And before, by Tuesday afternoon, she was in my office saying, he, he, he asked me if I, if I had the Holy Spirit. I didn't know how to answer him. And, and I don't have the Holy Spirit. I don't have anything like that. And she accepted Christ as her Savior that day in my office. As, uh, by that challenge, is the Spirit of God in you testifying of Jesus Christ? He will testify of Christ. His presence is the evidence. It is the testimony. And who are you testifying to? Not only yourself, but to those around you. And we're not talking about the church. We're not at that point yet. Um, we're going to be developing that later on in the epistles. This is the Christ about the initiation of the church. He is going to testify of me to others. And, it, and we can understand what he's saying by going to the next verse. The next verse following this talks about... Uh, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So he's talking to the 12. So just like you saw everything I did, you 12 saw everything I did, you heard everything I did, you were invoked in it, and three of you heard saw a little bit more than the other ones. Remember, Peter, James, and John were 
there at the Transfiguration. So they saw and heard a little bit more than the rest. They are the intimate of the intimates. And so uh, you all saw this. You all heard this. You're going to be a witness to the world. And they were. And they shared the gospel. And it got them beat up. Just like he said, the world's going to hate you because it hated me. Uh, they're going to be arrested. They're going to be martyred. Uh, these things are going to happen to them. So they were faithful in witnessing. And so when it says the Holy Spirit will testify of me, I compare it to the witness of the first century. And so the first century saw this and heard and then communicate what they saw and heard. And that is consistent throughout the scripture. What we have received, we give you. Even Paul, what I've received from the Lord, I re relate to you in 1 Corinthians that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So the, wit so the witness is of the original 12, but now we have another witness who is Holy Spirit, and he will testify of Jesus Christ. And that is the evidence is there that is with us. I didn't personally see Jesus perform any miracles. I didn't personally hear him teach, but I have the witness of him in me. I have him testifying to the veracity of the scriptures, to the veracity of the claims of Christ, and to the veracity of salvation itself as he comes in and makes himself evident in my life. And so as I engage with Holy Spirit through his word, um, I have a deeper and deeper confidence because I have this testimony. And that should be evident to the world that I have complete peace. And this is a key element to having peace. That's why he associates it in the last chapter with peace. Don't let not your hearts be troubled. You have a testifier inside of you. And it is not an experience that we bank ourselves on for eternal security. It is not the experience. It's not a prayer. It's none of those. The testifier of Jesus in your life is Holy Spirit within you. And so the question is, is, is he there? And if there's nothing in your life and there's no evidence, there's nothing, and I'm not talking about just whether you feel him there or not, but whether you know him to be there or not, when you have, have um, seen him at work and heard him at work and, and there's ample evidence that he is convicting of sin, that he is, that he is um, uh, guiding you towards righteousness, that he is, that he is engaged in your daily walk, then that is the testimony of Jesus Christ in you. I don't need to see. And that's why Thomas couldn't yet. He didn't have this testimony within him yet. That's why Jesus Christ tells Thomas, it says, you, are, it's, you see and believe and that's great. But he said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Well, that's you and me. We're in a more blessed position than Thomas. Because we haven't seen or touched any of it. And yet we have a testimony, a testifier in us to Jesus Christ. That all he is and claimed to be, all he taught and all he did... Um, is true. I have that testimony. And, and that is 
only developed and strengthened and, and, and matured and, and, and solidified as we engage our relationship with Holy Spirit by engaging ourselves in God's word. And this we are called to do. He is the spirit of truth, not the spirit of experience, not the spirit of emotions, not the spirit of, of gifts, the gifts are of the Spirit, not the Spirit of gifts. It's not how we identify Him. We are, our identification our is the testimony of Jesus in us. How is it that I come to God's Word and I can read that and as I conform myself to it, that's my part. My part is to conform myself to it. We're going to talk about how to do that in many ways um, that is listed here by Jesus in these three chapters. And we're going to conform ourselves to it. And the Spirit responds. God sends him into our life because we have responded to his provision. He is now there. And now we are called to respond to him. And by faith, obedience, and engagement, we, he responds to us. And we have this development of a relationship in the Mutual responding to one another. Yeah, that's redundant. Sorry. Just keep responding. Holy Spirit is, is God. He's good. He desires you to have a victorious Christian life. He desires you to, to walk out of the time with his word, say, I'm a more than a conqueror through him who loved me. That's what he wants in your life. He wants you to have peace, joy, love. That's all this is targeting towards that point. He wants you to have this vital, active uh, prayer life, but it's, but it's all built upon a developed relationship with the Holy Spirit. Why are our prayers so weak is because our relationship with the Spirit is so weak. We have disengaged him, and we want to go to this prayer thing and expect to skip this whole structure that God has established. Well, I believe in Jesus, but you haven't been walking in the Spirit. And that's why James says, be careful who you ask to pray for you, because not, it's only the prayers of the righteous man that are worthwhile. And there are many occasions in, in the Scriptures that we have people's prayers um, that says... God won't hear them. He won't hear them. He will not listen. Why? Because they are not accompanied by righteousness, by repentance, and by the truth. And so we are called to envelop this. And you already know this. And chapter 16 is how you already know this. You already know you have to respond to the Holy Spirit. Because that's how you got saved. Because the Holy Spirit initiated even your faith in Jesus Christ by this work that he does universally to all men, and that is to convict. And we're going to study a lot more about that next week. My time is slipping by very quickly. But I just want to rehearse for you a little bit. You already have had in your past an interaction with the Holy Spirit that required you to respond. Holy Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness of judgment. It's going to tell us in chapter 16. And now that intersects every life on earth. It says he convicts the world. 
So it intersects your life where you have under a conviction. This is not just your conscience telling you that, oh, I probably shouldn't have done that. I kind of feel bad about that. Uh, usually when your conscience is invoked, it's because it didn't turn out so well. Then you feel bad. Oh, I kind of feel bad because, you know, I, I, um, and eventually if you just keep doing evil things, the Bible says your conscience can be seared with a hot iron that it just doesn't bother you anymore to do evil things. Uh, and that's where so many in our society have gotten to. And so you can't trust your conscience because your conscience can be deceptive. Because you can not feel bad about doing some really wicked things. In fact, you could be self-righteous about doing wickedness. And all I need to do is point to the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees in the scriptures, were they ashamed of what they did? They were proud of of their unrighteousness because they had made it, they had redefined it into righteousness and self-righteousness. They had redefined it and now they walked around like peacocks that they are the ones to be, and Jesus Christ has condemned them. <laughs> You're whitewashed sepulchers. You're white on the outside and dead on the inside. You're walking dead men and you're proud of it. So yes, it is possible to not, or it's, it is possible for your conscience to actually take evil and be proud of it. And so it, it is no mistake that it's called a pride parade in our days. What are they proud of on the pride parades in our day, in our country? They're proud of the most disgusting sin the scripture lists. Right before God comes and pours judgment down. And they call it a pride because they have taken pride, their conscience, has deceived them. So we can't rely upon the conscience to know right from wrong. And so for you to even come to Christ required Holy Spirit to come in and do what your conscience wouldn't, and that is to convict you of sin and of holiness, God's righteousness, and of a judgment to come that you're guilty. And so when I have that crossing my life and I have this necessity to deal with this, I can either resist Holy Spirit, reject Him, turn away from it, or I can embrace that and realize I am in trouble, I need help, and now we can come to Jesus Christ looking for the salvation that we need. When, I have, when we use that terminology, uh, people in the world now say, what do you mean saved? Saved from what? And they mean that sincerely. Because we've been teaching them since they were this high. That ain't nothing they do is wrong. Because we've been instructing them in our public schools in situational ethics and in, and in a, a, that you define right and wrong. And give that power to a child and see what happens. Nothing is ever wrong if I do it. So we need this work of Holy Spirit to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so we uh, depend upon that for you to come to Christ. That's why whenever we go out with the gospel, whenever we share the gospel, um, we are not just praying, Lord, give me the right words, um, which is an appropriate prayer. The Bible says that don't worry about what you're going to say. Um, the Holy Spirit will give you what to say. Does that sound like? It sounds like chapter 14. I will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things I said to you. That's reliance on the Holy Spirit. 
So I don't have a canned message for, that I go around with that I've memorized called the gospel. Because every person you engage with is different. So uh, that's why I don't have a lot of tracks. I don't, I don't have a canned presentation. Other people have evangelism explosion we did as, as a, when I was a teenager and these other uh, evangelistic um, systems that men develop um, uh, that s- are trying to s- solicit uh, responses, usually a sinner's prayer. The um, Bible says, trust in the Holy Spirit. He's a bringer, he's the Spirit of truth. He will lead you. He will assist you. He will bring it to your memory and how to engage this person with the gospel. It might be a different than how I engage that person with the gospel. And, but what is required that I cannot do is I cannot convict them of their sin. I can call them on it. I can tell them it's sin. I can confront them with sin, but I cannot convict them of sin. A person convicted of their sin by the Spirit of God um, will exhibit godly sorrow. A person who is resisted the conviction of the Holy Spirit will exhibit defiance and hatred. They will hate you. This is what Jesus said earlier in chapter 15. And so you already know that you have to respond to Holy Spirit for anything further to happen because you have to respond to his conviction to uh, respond to the gospel. You have To receive the gospel, you have to respond to conviction. And if that conviction uh, wasn't there, but it is there because God promised that he will convict the world. So all men have this conviction of the Holy Spirit beyond the, their conscience. Then they have to either respond to it, resist it, reject it. And because I have a hard time distinguishing between resisting and rejecting, I keep giving people the gospel. The difference between resisting and rejecting is one has condemned themselves to eternity and the other one is still struggling. And there's still some hope there. And I have a hard time distinguishing those in people, whether they're rejectors or resistors. And uh, so I just treat them all that way and just keep giving them the gospel, keep praying for them. And when I pray for people, I'm praying that Holy Spirit keep convicting them. And I'll keep witnessing to them. And I will live a life that will testify of Jesus in me by the power of your Spirit in me. And when we start looking for these things in the Christian life, then we start to really tap into what it means to have a relationship with Holy Spirit. But we've let these other groups muddy this so badly that we've actually done exactly what the Pharisees did with the law, and that is that we have transplanted it and we've lost complete track of the true nature of Holy Spirit and our relationship with him that is built on truth. Is built on his historic work of the scriptures. It's built on his engage, my engagement with him and his engagement with me of obedient life that looks to the scriptures and says, oh, I'm supposed to be doing that. Why am I not doing that? Well, because some preacher gave me some excuse not to do that, but I don't see those excuses in the Bible, so I'm going to go ahead and do that because the Bible says I should do that. And boom, suddenly... I'm not self-righteous. I'm being convicted by the Holy Spirit through his word because I'm spending time in it. I need to 
be engaged in this, I haven't been engaged in that, or I need to stop being engaged in that, that I have been engaged in that doesn't please him, and as I respond by faith obediently, the Spirit then can testify even further in my life. And I created the environment for him to reign here. I not only want a relationship, I want to reign. I want him to reign. I want his will to be done. What is his will? His will is that we be obedient to his word and that we have peace, joy, and the love of the Father. That the fruit of the Spirit is powerfully evident. That the gifts of the Spirit are are being exercised for the benefit of the body of Christ. That all of this is coming together in a maturing and growing fashion that I am more than conqueror through him who loved me. This is what has been lost as we discuss Holy Spirit in, this, in these days, in my entire lifetime. As, a, as other groups have, have hijacked it and taken it off into these other areas that just aren't biblical. And so they disobey the scripture while claiming to be spirit-filled. And I ask again, how can that be? How can it be? How can a woman stand in a pulpit and preach and claim to be spirit-filled when she is in direct contradiction of the scriptures? How can it be? It is no different than the woman who comes to me and says, I feel that God has led me to commit adultery. There's no difference. Both are blaming God for their disobedience to the scriptures. And then we call that spirit-filled because I speak in gibberish or I get excited or I am a good communicator or I can get people hyped up. No, it's truth. Truth is what the Spirit is first about. And yes, even in conviction, it's about truth. So don't get, let these others muddy us. Don't let them get us confused and confounded and think somehow that we're not Spirit-filled. I've had that, that leveled against me. You don't have a Spirit-filled church. You can't believe how many times and what people have told me that. And I say, well, what truth am I not teaching or practicing for you to say that? Oh, you just don't have the, oh, well, that's, that's man's invention. That's not God's. The Spirit is a Spirit of truth. Our helper, our paraclete, we depend upon him, but we have to respond to him, to his word. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you again for this time your word. We thank you for your spirit within us. And Lord, we... Um, No, we know that we have resisted him, we have ignored him, we have quenched him. We have filled our lives with everything but him. Our thoughts, our hearts, our appetites. And so Lord, we pray for your forgiveness. And we pray that we might move forward in our walk with you that he might direct our life in the narrow way, the way of life. 
that you might move us from belief to belief to true belief. To your honor, praise, and glory. And it's his name we pray. Amen.